Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Today, we're going to start a brand new series today called Positively. I don't know, it'll be three or four parts or shorter. Sometimes I get bored with series. It's like, okay, we're done already. Let's do something different. But uh, we're going to do a three or four part and we'll see how it goes. And let me reiterate what Gianna mentioned earlier that um, uh, Dan, Dan Sendoff, he'll preach next week. We're going to pray over him. But the party segment is to be determined. So anything you can do to help us get the word out, because we sent an email that kind of said otherwise regarding the pizza and all that kind of thing for next Sunday. But we're not going to do it. So for the next few weeks, I would really like to visit about uh, the biblical view of being positive in a not-so-positive world. And I'm confident that God will reveal truth to us by way of scripture and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might become more positive people. I want to share about being positively optimistic. Now, if you know me well, like my wife does, you would say, really, you're optimistic? Because I married the most optimistic woman on the planet. She married a stick in the mud, a pessimist. So just for fun, so I don't feel all by myself, I'd like to know, being honest, how many of you view yourself as a pessimist with me? Yeah, yes. There's more than one at church today. I am so grateful. That's Okay, how many of you view yourself as an optimist? Right, right, right. Okay, now if you're given to either one of the extremes or if your spouse, for example, uh, picks on you because you're a pessimist, that's never happened in our marriage, but if she did, I would say, well, no, I'm a realist. Right? That's the middle. Yeah. Realist. You you know, you're not optimistic. You're not pessimistic. You're realistic. Anyhow, if you're reading uh, Psalm 23 as an optimist, and it gets to the point where it says, my cup overflows, you're like, yes, God is blessing me now. He's going to bless me in the future. But if you read it as a pessimist, not that I would know what that's like, it would be, oh my goodness, how are we going to clean up this mess? We have, we have these tendencies, that direction. I don't know if you've noticed this, but all around us, myself included at times, people are looking for a reason to be critical and cynical and negative. And sometimes I think we're given to thinking the more critical or negative we are, like the better life will be. It's really an odd thing because we're realists, of course. And then you pause long enough. I don't know if you do this, but I do this on occasion. And I actually think of how I talk to myself. Have any of you ever evaluated your self-talk? It's like, Pam, uh, do you guys familiar with uh, Winnie the Pooh? Winnie the Pooh? Awesome. Okay. My wife is Tigger. She's bouncing everywhere. 
I, however, am Eeyore. Oh, no. No, seriously, the poor thing. I don't know how we've stayed married 42 years. I just... But we have this self-talk thing where it's, oh, my life stinks. I don't have what it takes. And we actually almost try to talk ourselves into having a bad life. It makes no sense, but I fall prey to negative self-talk on occasion. And maybe your day-to-day conversations are similar to what mine are. I visit with people kind of from all different walks of life, and I, I always hear, oh, no, the economy is doomed. Oh, no. The government is poisoning our food. Oh, no, you can't trust anybody. Nobody. Uh, When I visit with young people, that would be anybody under the age of like 35. That's what I'm referring to. Okay, under the age of 65, because I'm 65. So we talk to young people, and it's like, Don't even get started talking about baby boomers. Don't even go there, of which I'm one. And then those my age will say, don't you start talking about Gen Z or millennials because they're messed up. Everybody sees everybody else as messed up. Are you with me? It's like, let's look for all that we can find that isn't good in the world around us. And I think I can say this in church, since we're actually in a school, I'm going to try to tackle it. My mom's from Oklahoma, and this is what she would say. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. Anybody heard that phrase? Yep, everybody over 50's heard it. This is good. This is good. In reality, let's just be realistic. As opposed to pessimistic or optimistic. But anyhow, um, the world's pretty messed up. Amen? It is pretty messed up. There's no doubt about it. And as Christ followers, I am not suggesting that we put our head in the sand and ignore stuff. That's not what I'm saying. Because there are some things that are pretty jacked up in the world around us. However... This much I know is true, that God is doing amazing things around the world, actually even in the United States of America, and maybe more importantly, God is at work in West Eugene, Oregon. He is. He's that faithful. And I'm going to share with you what I would call a truth bomb because I kind of like to sound younger than I actually am. So a truth bomb is this. You will find exactly that which you're looking for. You will find what you're... I'm going to illustrate. You're going to dig this illustration. Well, maybe not. But anyhow, the illustration is this. How many of you have seen a hummingbird in flight? It's incredible. I threw this illustration in for Joshua because I know he likes birds. (laughs) Anyhow, so the hummingbird, you know, it's all beautiful when the light hits it. Any of you, can you draw to your mind's eye an image of a buzzard? Not quite as lovely. You know? Okay, so a buzzard is doing his like soaring thing like this. And what's the buzzard looking for? Oh, something dead, decaying, gross, maggot filled. Should I go on? And the buzzard always finds it. They do, or there wouldn't be any buzzards left. Now let's take the hummingbird. 
So I got to get my wings flapping at the same time or I'm going to go in circles. Anyhow, so, and the hummingbird. What's the hummingbird looking for? Something sweet. And there's lots of hummingbirds, are there not? So that leads me to believe that the buzzard finds what it's looking for and the hummingbird finds what it is looking for. They both find that which they're most focused upon. Now, I think that illustration clearly proves that we always find what we're looking for. I know it's a bit of a stretch because we're talking about birds. But you get my point. Okay, I'll have to read the Bible then to you. Proverbs 11, verse 27. If you search for good, you will find favor. But if you search for evil, this is kind of scary, it will find you. We find what we're looking for. And I suspect, you know, as you've heard kind of the description of the series and maybe the tone of today's message, you're probably going, okay, I'm not going to come for the rest of the series. I would encourage you to come and suffer through it because I think God's going to touch us all one way or another. Or maybe you're at that place where, you know what? I don't like church because the music was too loud today. And somebody else would say, well, the music was too quiet today. And someone else would say, the songs were too old today. And somebody else would say, the songs are too contemporary today. And some of you might say, well, that guy up front, he wears denim and Hawaiian shirts. That's not cool for church today. I'm glad you're here today. And the point that I want to make today is not like some pop psychology thing or the power of positive thinking. Though Norman Vincent Peale wrote a great work and all that, it's, it's not about a name it, claim it, I'll be positive and all of life will be positive. I want to give you two keys, which are actually one, but I wrote them in separate sentences, and it's this. We are not optimistic based on what we feel. Can, we have that. Can you, can you read this with me? I'm not optimistic based on what I feel. We are optimistic based on what God says. Boom. Let's read this together. I'm optimistic based on what God says. Now, if we base it on our feelings or the shifting culture around us, I assure you, our journey will be like this. But if we base it on what God says, it might level out, flatten out, not in a negative way, but we'll avoid some of the extremes. So today, I, have, I want to share with you eight optimistic points from Romans 8. I know it's kind of tacky, I get it. And there's way more than eight, but doesn't um, eight from eight sound like cooler than 17 from eight? It does, and you got to be hip, and you got to be cool if you don't come by it naturally. So we're going to do eight points, and we'll probably fly through them pretty quick. Um, so we're optimistic because, number one, our sins are forgiven, and our eternity is secure. That's when you say, or somebody awake says, amen, because that's good news. If that doesn't stir our hearts, I, I don't... 
Maybe we should go to a movie instead. I'm not sure. But our sins are forgiven and our eternity is secure. Verses 1 and 2 of Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That, my friends, is God's holy word. And that is good news for those of us. And it can give us cause toward optimism. I mean, do you ever pause and think about the list or the magnitude of the things that God has forgiven you of, or maybe some of your loved ones? It's incredible. That is cause to celebrate and to be uh, positively optimistic. Number two, we're optimistic because Jesus is at the right hand of God praying for you, praying for me, praying for us. If you're suffering from an Eeyore complex today, like I do on occasion, if you just think of the fact that the Son, the living Son of God, is praying by name for you and for me And you think, well, there's too many people. He can't really keep all the balls in the air. He's God. He he can pray for you and be praying for me. Verse 34. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. To intercede means to uh, carry the weight of the burdens or needs of another before God. Think about this. Jesus is positioned and he holds a posture in the presence of God that allows God to hear directly from his son your name, your needs, your requests. For me, that is reason to be uh, a lot a bit optimistic. Quite honestly, we're optimistic because, number three, our future victory is greater than our present pain. You might say, oh, you have no idea how much pain I'm in right now. You have no idea what my medical report is. You have no idea what's going on in my household. And you're absolutely right. I have no idea. But I do know for sure that our future victory is greater than our present pain. Verse 18, Paul says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Now you might think, okay, that's easy for the Apostle Paul to say. He's the Apostle Paul. Well, I don't know how... uh, how uh, voraciously you consume God's word. But if we spend time reading about the Apostle Paul, it puts a whole lot more power in this passage because he knew what suffering was. He knew what mistreatment was. He knew what injustice was. And it just puts more weight into that passage. Some of you are going, I'm not gonna ask you to tell me who you are. This is between you and the Holy Spirit. But some of you are going through pain and disappointment. Maybe even despair would be the appropriate word. And I'm telling you, even in the midst of that, may the Spirit of God grant you an element of optimism. Because 
your future victory is greater than your present pain. It is. That is encouraging to me. We're optimistic not because of what we feel, but because of what God says. Number four, we're optimistic because our mind is filled with the peace of God. Verse six, the mind governed by the flesh is death. Now, scripture uh, translates the word flesh. It's kind of our sinful nature. It's the humanity in us that sometimes overrules the divinity that is ours when we receive Christ. So driven by the flesh. The flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. So how many of you here today, and I'm going to put you on the spot, at one point in your life committed your life and the lordship of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Most of us, if not all of us, but a good number of us have. And so we have the mind of Christ. Our minds can be refreshed and renewed and transformed. And even in the darkest of times, because of the goodness of God, we can experience a peace and a purity of thought that you cannot explain. Some of you could tell stories of it. I remember getting a call about one o'clock in the morning, this was probably five or six years ago now, from an Oregon State trooper. And uh, it's like, whoa, this is weird. This particular trooper attended our church and he called and said, hey, I can't do this, but you might want to call such and such a family. Their daughter was killed in a single car accident. And so you do what you do. We paid a visit and and prayed with and cried with and, and suffered alongside. And it was amazing to me, even in the midst of their pain, to watch them suffer in anguish, yet there was, and they would testify to this, there was the presence of God's peace that could not be explained. That is a reason for optimism, if you ask me my opinion. Thank you. Number five, number five. This is straight out of God's holy word, this statement. If God is for me, Who can be against me? Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but I was told when I was in Greek class at Bible college that there's this Greek word pronounced eon or ein or something like that that could be translated if, but in some cases you could translate it as since. So this kind of reads more powerfully to me, since God is for me, who can be against me? And Paul says this in verses 31 and 33. Three, it's right there in the text. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Now, many of us, I suppose, could identify a face or a name or a clique or group of people or whatever who are criticizing us, taking shots at us, speaking disparaging words about us or to us. And by the way, if you're one of those who's casting disparaging words about others, I would ask you to invite the Spirit of God to convict you and to help you govern your tongue. I got another amen. This is just out of control. (laughs) 
So if we, if we immerse ourselves even in that truth, since God is for us, who can be against us? And we do face criticism. And I'll tell you this straight up. If you're not facing criticism now, take a step of obedience for God because you certainly will. The worst decision, no, the best decision I ever made was saying yes to Jesus to become a pastor. I don't know what I was thinking. And there's plenty of pain associated with it and lots of criticism. But one thing I've learned that when I, when I have walked, or Pam and I together have walked in obedience, there's always somebody who doesn't like what we're doing. And if you want people to like you, do not respond to the call to ministry because it's not for you because not everybody likes you. Yeah, you kind of laugh quietly. I appreciate that. So we can be optimistic since God is for us who can be against us. Another reason we can be optimistic, number six, is God's spirit helps us in our weakness. Before we move on from this, with full transparency, I would like to know if any of you view yourself at times as weak. I do. And if I had a third arm, I'd raise it in the air too, because weakness seems to run rampant in this man's life. And Paul says this in verses 24 through 26, who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, most of us Westerners or Americanized people want to put the period after the word it. We want to say, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it. Nobody likes the word patiently. Nobody. Maybe you do. Maybe I'm talking to a more godly group than I thought I was. But patience is one of those things that pessimists aren't gifted with. Oh, wait, I'm still reading. Okay, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So when we're down, the Holy Spirit holds us up. When we hurt, the Holy Spirit moves in with healing and a hand to lift us out of that which hurts on occasion. When we're weak, the Holy Spirit gives us strength. And frankly, I think in our, in our tough times, when we are crying consistently out upon the Spirit of God uh, to transform us, there's an intimacy with God um, all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, when we yearn and we hunger and we long uh, for him to touch our lives. Why can we be optimistic? Not because of our feelings. No way. We, we can be optimistic because of what God says. Number seven, we're almost done. We're getting to eight here pretty quick. We're optimistic because God is working everything in our lives for good. Now, this is where people that are really optimistic people, positively optimistic people would say, yes, preach it. That's exactly the truth. But this world that we live in is not comfortable. Things don't unfold in the timetable that we would prefer. It just doesn't happen. But there's so, so much positivity 
and optimism in knowing that verse 28 is a part of our lives. And we know that in all things, can anyone translate in all things what that means? Expert, it means in all things, right? Everything. And we know that in all things, good, bad, mediocre, tragic, whatever the case might be, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So God will transform everything in our lives at some point for our good and his glory. We get a little bit confused thinking, well, if it's for our good, it will be when I think it should happen. But basically that's saying, this is for my glory and God won't share his glory, not even with us, which is a good thing, I think. Some of us are more uh, like emotive people, like feeling driven. And, uh, and others a little bit more cranial, you know, intellectual and stuff like that. And both are fine. I'll, but what, I, what I'd like to address just momentarily is, is this. Because sometimes, even for the feelers, we do not feel God. We don't feel him. But that doesn't mean that he is any less God. It means that we're fallible human beings that rely upon our feelings at times. Sometimes we don't see him. But when I look at this text, verse 28 in particular, and I think, but there should be, there ought to be, there could be enough faith within me that shows me or confirms in me that he is at work even if I can't see him. And even if I don't feel him, we can trust him. Because our God knows the beginning from the end and everything in between. Go figure. In fact, you might be stressed about tomorrow or next week. God the Father, the one who loves you, the one who's listening to his son pray on your behalf, he's already there. It's not too big for him. We can be optimistic because God is working everything in our lives for my good and his glory. And this is the last one. We're wrapping it up. Say amen if you're ready to be done. That's a little awkward, isn't it? It's like, yeah, please finish. I don't like listening to you. It's weird. But I'm excited to wrap it up nonetheless. So one of the things in Romans 8 that just really stirs my soul, it causes me to soar like a vulture or a buzzard, but with the grace of a hummingbird. Put those two together, because I get so excited when I think about this. Number eight, nothing. Let me start again. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Somebody here is doubting whether God really, really loves you. I don't know who you are, but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to be kind of poking and prodding perhaps upon your heart. And I ask you, all of you, to hear this. Because these verses are so full of power and truth and liberation 
and optimism and positive energy, if you will. This is what Paul writes in verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter where you go, God is there. No matter what you've done, God's love remains the same and his invitation remains the same and his arms are open wide to receive you, to receive me. No matter what happens in this crazy life, your adult kids choose not to follow Jesus. It doesn't change his love for you or for them. You're facing financial ruin or whatever. It doesn't change the depth of love that God has for you and for me. You failed at this and failed at that and failed at the other thing. You are not a failure God's love for you does not change. You're a beloved child of God. The moment you say yes to him, you are not labeled by what you've done or where you've been. I wouldn't want any of those labels on me, but I'll take child of the king any day. Amen? Child of the king. And I will tell you this, you cannot outrun his love. You can't do it. And you can't run from his presence. Back in the old days, when I was in my early 20s, it was, there was this thing that, that the older people then, so I come to know Jesus at 23, but so like the older people, like 35 and 40, and above would say this. Um, when, whenever there was a questioning in my heart about the reality of who Jesus was, they would say, the hound of heaven is going to get you. And it was supposed to be encouraging, but it was kind of frightening. (laughs) But they would use the phrase hound of heaven in reference to the Holy Spirit because he would show up and he would draw us and he would compel us unto the Lord and Savior. So all I'm telling you is you are loved. You cannot outrun it. You cannot get away from his presence, and the hound of heaven wants you. And I mean that in a very positive way. Uh, Key point for today, if you'd care to remember it. We're not optimistic based on what we feel. We're optimistic based on what God says. Will you please bow your heads with me? We're going to pray. Worship team, please return. Those who are going to be stationed at the communion tables, if you would get in place to to pray for people, that would be great as well. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for just time in your presence, time with other uh, followers. Lord, it's so freeing to come before you, acknowledging our own brokenness, our own shortcomings, and rely uh, totally and completely upon your grace and your love and your mercy, your forgiveness. Uh, Thank you for revealing truth to us 
through your word. And thank you for the personal work that you do in each individual life. life. Uh, Holy Spirit, you meet us at our point of need. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would continue to speak to us as we approach this time of communion. Heavenly Father, may we be mindful of your plan to redeem humanity by way of Christ's broken body and his shed blood, by his death, burial, and resurrection. Father, as we approach these tables to partake of imagery of that truth, I pray that you would do a supernatural work within us. Lord, some of us will come to this table needing physical healing, emotional healing. We need relationships repaired. Some of us will come to this table acknowledging that we can lean towards pessimism, and yet there's so much to be optimistic for. Father, we bless your holy name, and I pray that you would have your way in each one of our lives as we receive uh, the body and the blood of our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.